Hello, I'm Toby Haydock, and I am not cleared for re-entry. So I'm in BAFTA again. Uh, the last time I was in BAFTA, I was speaking to the lovely Christine Rawlins, who mentioned that a friend of hers was an actor, uh, who I, of course, knew had been in Doctor Who. Uh, and he very kindly has got in touch, so we're back at BAFTA again, and I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, my name is John Moreno. Uh, I'm an actor, that's why I'm obviously being interviewed. And... Uh, Doctor Who, I'm being asked questions about Doctor Who, of which I have not much recollection, I'm afraid. It must have been a year in which I was working very hard, and it was just one of those programmes I fitted in, and I, I don't remember. I haven't seen it. I think I played a character called Dobson, and John Pertwee was the Doctor, and Mike, I think Mike or Mick, Mike Ferguson was the director, and that's yes. all I remember. I suspect I was a technician of some sort. You, you were you were a duplicitous technician. You were, you were helping Caroline John to decipher a code sent by aliens. And your big moment is when she then goes off, having worked out what the code is, you ring someone mysterious and say, they've started to crack the code. So there are moles everywhere, and you were one of them. I don't remember that. <laughs> and, but, and an interesting point is you're playing a character called Dobson, and you were credited then, and not now, uh, as Juan Moreno. So when did Juan become John, and what is the provenance of that? Uh, uh, Juan became John in 1972. I joined a company called the Actors' Company, which is a co... I think it was a democratic, first democratic company that existed in England, and in the company were Ian McKellen and Edward Petherbridge, Robin Ellis, Felicity Kendall, and Sheila Reed, and... Um, and lots of um, lots of very famous actors today um, and so I decided to change my name back to John because we were going to New York to do four plays in New York and I thought I can't have Juan Moreno in a British company filming in a Puerto Rican area of New York I mean performing in a, that was the Brooklyn Academy of Music which is in Brooklyn just across the river from Manhattan Highland and, um, and so I changed my name and I just kept it. But I did change my name earlier to John, so I, I, it was a very confused pe period because I didn't like Juan, so I, by deep poll I changed it to John, but I kept Juan because I thought it sounded more exotic. Um, I was changed back and forth. I think they might have, I don't know why, but I did. That's when I changed it in 70, 72, 71, something like that. But it does mean you've played an awful lot of nationalities for, for the BBC, particularly. I seem to have done, yeah, I seem to have done, yes. Beaugest Bo was one and Trident was another. So, yes, I did. Oddly enough, often in, in, in television and in films, like, I don't know, the Bond film, I played an Italian Secret Service agent, um, I play, seem to play foreigners. I don't know why. Yes, but not, never in the theatre... No. But always in films, I think it was the name. People couldn't get past the name, the Moreno. Oh, he must be foreign. And if it was Juan, then he obviously is foreign. But then when I met them, they thought, well, John, you're not a foreigner, are you? So I know I said, but I can do all these accents because I 
well, my, because I've travelled and I pick up these foreign accents. I played Russians as well as other Germans and whatever. Um, so that's how it started. Why? I don't know. But then he got work. Nowadays, I think if you want to play a foreign character, you almost have to be foreign nowadays. I mean, you can't have an English actor putting on an accent because they won't believe it. They say, oh, that's not what a French accent sounds like when you know it is because you you worked, you were in the French army for a certain period of time, but uh, that's another story altogether. <laughs> um, but I'm fascinated that you were in the French Foreign Legion in Beaugest and you've just mentioned that you, you served time in the French army. Yes, yes. My mother was French and I was born in France. And so at the age of 17, 18, I went to France to Nice and um, I just British subject educated in England but I was born in France and came over to England when I was three months old so I spoke no other language but English and I was arrested at the hotel for draft dodging I was court-martialed um, three, three day, four days later I was acquitted when they realized I couldn't speak any French at all I could understand a little but I couldn't speak it uh, that a mistake had been made that my father had forgotten or had didn't know he had to officially renounced my French nationality at the French embassy, which he didn't do. So according to the French, I was still French. And so when I went to France, uh, you know when you go to a hotel in France, you have to fill, fill, in, fill in a little questionnaire, which then goes to the gendarmerie, and they look through people who are wanted, and that's, uh, and that's how they came to my hotel. And they put me in prison for three days, court-martialed me, but then when I was acquitted, I thought it was remin the court-martial was reminiscent of the French Revolution. It was very much like that, you know, rolling of the drums and the, the judges from all the services and the gendarmes standing in front of you and, and going down all the accused. But my, my case was so um, open and sharp that I was um, told that I was acquitted of the charge, but I still had to do my military service. So I was immediately taken from the courthouse straight to my to the barracks in Marseille and became a French soldier and uh, without a word of English without a word of English I mean without a word of French and uh, I, the, the, the captain of my company was astonished but then there were a lot of people in France who were under very similar circumstances they um, there was two Italians two Spaniards a German me and while I was in the barracks I saw what looked like a middle-aged American walking around the parade ground. I immediately went out to speak to him. I could tell by his clothes that he was American, and I went up and I said, Hello, um, what are you doing here? And he said, Oh my God, you can speak English. I said, Yes. And it turned out he was born in France, his parents were French, he immigrated to, to um, the United States when he was 13. He was now 57 years old, married, had completed his military service in the U.S. Army, come back to Paris to see the motherland with his wife and his two children. The gendarmes came to his hotel three days later, knocked on the door, and they said, Monsieur, and they said, yes, they said, come with us. And they took him from Paris to Marseille. The wife and kids didn't know what had happened to him, and he ended up walking around the, the parade ground, not knowing what the hell had happened, couldn't speak any French. And... Uh, but apparently was released because he had a weak heart. Oh. But it was during the height of the Algerian war and they were just, I suppose, trawlering, trawlering people as, much as, as many as they could because there was 
there was, I don't know how many soldiers there were in Algeria, but there must have been 100,000 or 500,000, I don't know. I know there were, God, 75,000, 25,000 foreign legionnaires, there were about 50,000 paratroopers, and there were goodness knows what, apart from all the conscripts that were going in there. It was a huge war. It was about 500,000 soldiers. Huge amount. Everyone was going to Algeria and coming back, a lot of them in body bags, because it was a vicious war. Awful war. And, but I got out and managed to renounce my French nationality about three-quarters of the way through and got out. Although, very strangely, um, I was working in the office of, in, 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 and uh, a, the British Navy came into Marseille. This is quite early on in, in my career as a French soldier. The British Navy came into, um, into Marseille and I got a phone call from headquarters saying, can you lay on a courtesy coach? Apparently, every time the British Navy comes into Marseille, they lay on, sorry, they lay on a courtesy coach to take some of the ratings around Avignon, uh, Aix-en-Provence and places like that just to show them southern France. And I went to the captain and I said, um, can I be co-pilot on this, uh, this coach? Because he doesn't speak any, any English and I can help being, you know, a good French citizen. And he said, OK, will you give me your word as an English gentleman not to desert? Yeah. So I said, yes, of course. So I went on, I arrived there, we went to the docks and we waited and all the ratings, about 60 that came on, on the coach. And now we were all in French uniforms and I said, you don't believe this, chaps, but I'm English, actually. <laughs> and there I was in a French uniform speaking to them and they couldn't believe it. And so we talked, went round. This happened for three days. On the third day, which is the last day, we pulled up by the side of the... It was a factory ship and two submarines that were docked in Marseille Harbour. Um, we parked the, the, the bus and um, I think the second or third of the captain, are they called the firsts? lieutenant, captain, whatever, yeah. came down after all the, the sailors had gone back on board and he said, I just want to speak to the, um, the Englishman dressed in French uniforms. He said, um, and I said, it's me. He said, uh, the captain would like to, to see you, please, captain of the ship. So I said, can I bring my co-pilot? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went up to the captain's cabin and he said, I've just heard this extraordinary story that he had been telling the ratings. He said, um, is it true? I said, absolutely. He said, look, we sail at midnight. You're on British soil at the moment. We sail at midnight. If you want to stay with us, you can until we get out of um, territorial waters. And I said, Captain, I really appreciate your gesture, but I gave my word as an English gentleman to my captain that I'd come back. So he said, I understand. That's marvellous. You see, listeners, this is why I'm doing this podcast. Mr. Moreno said he didn't remember anything about Doctor Who, and I didn't care, because this is the stuff. Uh, that's wonderful. And so, well, that must have equipped you... Um, very well therefore and it's a lovely performance and I'd seen it quite by chance the night before you phoned me uh, in Beaugest for oh, yeah. a Doctor Who director Douglas Camfield yes indeed ind indeed I, I after it's funny it's, I think that story I told Douglas at the interview and that he said Got you. you're in <laughs> he said you're in and so uh, I paid Marius or someone yes, like that yeah and, and, and it's a barrack room with a couple of Americans, Germans, French... Yeah. You know, it's exactly the same. I didn't tell any of the, any of the uh, other um, actors what had happened to me. And, and the first scene was the scene in the desert where I'm having these depressions. Mm. Well, the depressions I know about from being in Algeria, so I didn't find that scene... It could have been better written, but I didn't find that scene difficult because I was just um, using my experiences of being in Algeria... Uh, with the Tuaregs 
although we were, I was never in the desert, but that, that soldiers that had come back and, you know, deeply depressed, because we used to transport them. I was in a transport company, and we used to transport these uh, crazy paratroopers and foreign legionnaires to these out-of-way places. About 500 lorries at a time used to go on these huge convoys and circle around these areas, and they'd go in and do what, what they had to do. But they come back quite traumatised, and I knew that symptoms. I just re- used that a little bit for that scene, particularly. And I came straight, I got straight out, I, dri- I left London about three o'clock in the morning, drove all the way there, straight to the location, straight into makeup, had my hair cut, and bang, straight into the scene. Oh, well, it's great, and it was, it was I think, the last job of, of uh, that Douglas Camfield did. Yeah, I know. I was very shocked. Cause he invited me to come and play table tennis with him a few weeks after we'd finished filming, and uh, he was so energetic. And the, the, the will to win, he did, be, he did beat me because he was very good at it. And he had the, the, the table in his back garden. And so, uh, yes, oddly, strangely enough, he looked very, very fit. So I was astonished to hear he'd gone. Something else that you appeared on as another foreign gentleman, which was a show called Moonbase 3. Oh, gosh, yes. Which was the attempt to do an adult Doctor Who that That's didn't right. quite work. That's right. I remember. Yes, I enjoyed that because I had a lot of my friends in that called Gary Hagen and people like that. <clears throat> yes, we were in Moonbase 3, which was the European base on the moon. There was the American base, there was the, the uh, USSR base, and there was the European base. So there were all nationalities there as well. Donald Houston was in it as well. I, I enjoyed doing it, I must admit, <clears throat> but they did tend to change the text on the floor just before shoot, you know, which did freak some of the actors out. When you've learned, when you've learned a piece of text, maybe ten lines, and all of a sudden they want you to take three lines out of the middle. When you've le- well, you know as an actor how it is. If they take out a whole, the whole speech, and you can certainly do that, but when they take out three lines from a speech mm. you were in, it's very difficult to get... Because there's a, there's a mental process going on, isn't there, in the mind where you just, you're going through thought processes. Yeah. So uh, to just take out a thought when it links so logically in your, as you do the speech, you go from one thought to the other, don't you, really? Without. But funny enough, I, I felt very happy, but it was going on a lot. And I remember I was sitting in front of some screens, having seen something awful happen. And the director said, John, we just want a reaction shot of you seeing this awful thing on the screen there was no screen in front of me of course I was just looking at a blank wall or a blank I don't know, nothing I just want you to give a reaction shot to uh, what you've seen and I said, I said to the director I said, what am I looking at what, what have I seen to make me I, I, how can you react to something that you, you, you don't know what it is you haven't been told what it is you don't know how awful it is, is it frightening, is it horror are you surprised or you're not surprised but this is when time is at an essence, you know. Just say, "Give us a reaction shot." Like what? I mean, surprise, horror, worry, joy, hilarity, whatever. <laughs> You've got to know something, haven't you, about yeah. why you're reacting. Yeah. You can't always turn it on, can you? No, you have no. to have a context, really. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you alluded there to your um, friend, which I didn't know until you spoke to me on the phone. Uh, and he's one of those rare actors that has done Doctor Who in the old days and Doctor Who in the present day, and that's your friend Garrick Hagen. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we were... Garrick, I mean, he's a lovely chap. And uh, we met doing um, The Tempest down in Leatherhead. And uh, he played Ferdinand, I played Ariel, and Christopher Gable... Mm. Played, played Caliban, 
and uh, there's lots of stories around that production which I can't quite <laughs> tell you but I was rehearsing that while I was at the Mermaid doing Dick Turpin um, so it was, it was very busy you know as actors alike you can be sitting on your, on your hands for two months and all of a sudden two jobs come along at the same time so you're working, you're working in the evening and you're rehearsing in Leatherhead all, all during the day and you, you know, you're trying to learn lines it's like being in weekly rep really or two weekly rep which, so you know, you're doing a, a show in the evening but you're learning that in the next play during the day and you have no time you know. and you go home from finishing the show at 11 o'clock and you sit till 2 learning lines for the next I don't know how they did I never did two weekly rep but I did two weekly rep and it was horrific I mean very hard work but it's, people don't do that anymore no. that's, that's the old days I mean it is it's like when I did Treasure Island the Mermaid in 68 or 69 Donald Wolfitt was Long John Silver and Barry Rushton was Squire Trelawney, Spike Milligan was, long, uh, was Ben Gunn, and he was an actor of the old school, Donald Wolfitt, and he was able to get an entrance round and an exit round. And I never knew how, how you were able to do it, and I saw his tricks, I saw how he got it. I show you how he did it. I'll show you, because it has to be a visual thing. But how you get an entrance round when you come on, it's the old theatre, you know, the old school of, of, of getting recognition and how you how you get an exit round. So when you finish and you make an exit, you get a round of applause. Fabulous. And so, and so Wilfit engineered his own yes, approbation. He, yes, he did. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the old trick of... I remember I got so angry with an actor, I remember when he used to make an exit round, he used to clap. As he into the wings, he'd go... Have you ever seen that happen? I haven't. Have you heard about it happening? I have heard about it happening, yes. Very naughty. Like like purposely corpsing on stage in order to get the audience? I worked with an actor once who ad-libbed at at a performance, and if it got a laugh, that ad-lib or that corpse made it so... And it was Shakespeare. By the end of the run, his touchstone, all of his laughs, none of them were from the text. They were all from supposed inventions that he'd road tested. Terrible, Shocking. terrible. I mean, I play Touchstone, and it's a very, it's, it's a difficult part because there are no laugh, there are no comic dialogue, no. and uh, you just have to be very clever. Uh, it's a little bit like the Fool in Lear. You know, it's called the Fool, and it's supposed to be very funny, but my God, it's not easy because the text is very dense. In fact, you can't understand a lot of the stuff that Touchstone is saying. No. Yeah, I mean, it's not, they're not, Touchstone and, and The Fool are not, are not easy no. to do. No. Not easy. Well, I'm, I'm pleased that you mentioned Christopher Gable. He, he is in a Doctor Who, aside from, you know, his ballet connections and all of that illustrious and stuff his, that he yeah, did. And his RSC connections um, as well. Indeed. Uh, and he gives, what I think what is generally considered one of the best guest performances in Doctor Who is a sort of Phantom of the Opera type of character he was a very gifted actor wasn't he Gabe? I thought I mean I, I love I, I, yeah, I thought we were I thought we were a very talented company Patty Love was uh, uh, with Miranda and Bob Hot not Bob Hoskins um, another Hoskins was uh, Basil Hoskins Basil Hoskins was uh, Prospero yes I mean yeah and but it was a wonderful production from one of the directors that was at the city city Glasgow sits Robert, May, Robert David MacDonald, and he did a most wonderful production. Absolutely wonderful. 
Basil Hoskins is of course famous as the man that took Lawrence Payne's eye out during a sword fight uh, when they were doing Se- Sexton Blake uh, oh my god yeah so Lawrence Payne ever after had a glass eye um, god well you know talking about fight you know I'm, a, I'm an equitative uh, um, registered fight Fight director as well and there are some awful accidents I mean I did all the fights at Treasure Island and one day my cutlass or somebody's cutlass no it wasn't my cutlass broke in the middle of a fight and whizzed out and hit a lady sitting in the third row and it happened in the uh, happened in the Regent's Park as well metal gets metal fatigue and you're whacking away and you know you try to make a choreograph so no stroke goes that's the audience over there, that, that motion. You try not, but they will snap, and they will go, particularly a cutlass. I mean, foils and rapiers are not so bad because they're much thinner, but cutlass, sabers, and all those heavy weapons, when they snap, they can do bad damage, not only to... So, I mean, there is extraordinary, there are some extraordinary stories about fights on stage. Um, I remember when we did, I did the fights for Romeo and Juliet, I played Tybalt and Friar Lawrence in Japan, and on the first night in Tokyo with an audience of 2,000 people, we did the fight, we did the play, we took the bows, the curtain came down, the audience clapped, we all went to our dressing room. Five, eight minutes later, uh, there was a call over the tannoy saying, can John Moreno, and I can't remember the other actor's name, uh, please, uh, Richard Howard, come to the stage with your rapiers. And we, so we came downstairs, we were now in our clothes, street clothes, and we came down, he said, he said they're all sitting out there, all 2,000 of them. And they want to see the fight again. <laughs> so the curtain went up and we looked out and there were an entire audience sitting there and they said, we want to see the fight again. So we performed the fight again. How bizarre. Isn't that extraordinary? So how did you discover that you had an aptitude for fighting? Well, my father was a juggler in variety and I was brought up with, I was brought up with lots of... Um, I was very dexterous with clubs and rings and balls, and, but my father never wanted me to be in variety, wanted me to be an actor. Um, but I was very good in the hands, and when I was in drama school, um, I was very good at sword fighting, and I picked that up very quickly, choreography, because my father wanted me, when I was a little boy, to learn all things. I learned to tap dance and ballet class and piano and all things like that. He wanted me to have lots of skills. And so when I went to drama school, I was very dexterous where that's concerned. And when I went into rep, my very first rep, there was a very famous fight director who was an actor uh, called Paddy Crane, who was in the company, and he'd worked with Errol Flynn in, the, in, in Hollywood, and he was a wonderful, I picked up all his, and he said to me, you can be my assistant, you can do, you know, and, and some of the stuff you can do yourself. So I, what happened was is that when I went to other reps and there was a fight involved with a, a play, either Treasure Island or a Shakespeare play, you know, Lear or something like that, I just choreograph all the fights. I, I saw you in The Taming of the Shrew, yes. giving your very northern Grimio That's right. uh, to the uh, Kate of Kate O'Mara, who's Indeed. a Doctor Who icon. And she was wonderful in it. But we had a good production and a good cast, really. Uh, Tim, Tim Woodward, who's Edward Woodward's son, eldest son, um, was Petruchio. And that was, a, that was quite a democratic company, wasn't it? <clears throat> it, it was, in, in terms of money... Uh, and there was no director. We directed ourselves. And it worked tremendously well in the first couple of productions, I think. Taming the Shoe was a huge commercial success. And I've seen that, I've never seen that part play, the part I played. I've never seen it played on stage, but I saw it subsequently. I went to see it 
um, in uh, the REC at Stratford, uh, purposely to see what the actor would do with Grimio. And he never got a laugh. Oh. Not a titter on that speech when he's describing the wedding mm. on the altar, which I think, and this is where the director said to me, it was, t- it was, uh, it was Peter Woodward, the, who, was the, who was the nominal head of the company, said, when you're doing that speech, John, I think you've got to start to describe what you're seeing physically, you know, jump around and do all that kind of thing, imitate what Petruchio was doing in the church. And I said, Peter, I said, if the audience hear these words and they remember what Petruchio is like, I just got to give them time to visualize it. And I'll stay absolutely still. As you know, I did the speech, I stood still, I did like a, like a, a front cloth, like a comedian, telling a story, a bit like you. Just said the words, let it sink in, and it got a laugh on every line. I don't know if it did it in Wolverhampton, but it got a laugh on every line. You just got to tell them, just give them the image. They can see it, and when they see it, they laugh. But you've got to have a very good Petruchio. You've got to have a wild Petruchio, then it works. If you have a tame Petruchio, they don't find it particularly outrageous, then it won't work. But they can visualise what the mayhem is doing in the church. But no, you've got to, that speech has got to be given air. And that's what I learnt watching the comedians in variety when I was standing by the side of the stage, in the wings, watching these great comedians and their timing. It's the timing and the delivery. And we know that more than anyone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's not easy to do. It's not easy yeah. to do. It's a skill that I don't know. You either you can be born with it. I just knew instinctively how to get. I remember doing a play, my first rep, where I was playing lots of different parts, and I played this this Cockney window cleaner, and he was being interviewed, supposedly in a studio with the with the interviewer with a microphone, and. I'd got a cap on and overalls like that, you know, talking like that, you know. And I had the cap low and I bet I kept my head down. And uh, it, the, the character got a lot of laughs. And the director says, John, why didn't you lift your head up and let the audience see your face? I said, it won't get a laugh. I said, I'll show it to you. And I just did the same thing the next night. The audience could see my face. It didn't get a titter. It's the fact that they were imagining what I was looking like and what I was... That it was their imagination doing it all. They just heard this voice coming out, you know, I don't know what so, And they found that funny, just the hat. Brilliant. Um, and you've got, it's not a bad pedigree to have Doctor Who and uh, James Bond on your CV. <laughs> I mean, I'm very, I mean, I'm, I feel so um, lucky to have been in Doctor Who and James Bond. Uh, and the experience with James Bond was very, very strange because I was, I was playing Philip of France in The Talisman, which is about the Crusades, and it all plays place in Palestine, you know. And I was feeling very confident. And because he was the king of France, there was three or four scenes in which he was in Palestine talking to the other members of the alliance, you know, the Duke of Austria and, and of course, Richard the Lionheart, and knights, some knights templars, and I was sitting on a throne, and it was the day after we'd done this big recording of me sitting on the throne giving forth. That when I came to the interview with Eon Productions, I walked into the room and they seemed to be about thirty faces, and they put me in a chair which was very similar to a throne. It was a tall, high-backed chair, and I sat back and I felt like Philip of France, and I, I felt so at ease and. The, 
I didn't know who was, I didn't know who the director was, I couldn't recognize, I didn't see Cobb Broccoli, they're all there, everybody was there, the casting, the direction, all the copies, all the broccolis were there, and I had a really good interview, and I spoke in my normal voice, and I got the part. And I had to play this Italian Secret Service agent, of course. And we got to Cortina d'Impezzo, which is where we filmed it, and we filmed the scenes, and halfway through, the director rang me up and said, John, we're going to have to cut six of your scenes because we're overrunning like mad. So we're going to cut all the dialogue scenes. And most of your stuff is with, with uh, um, Roger, and it's all chat. You know, we had a big luncheon date, and it was so. I drove the Lotus in the original scenes, and I was playing with buttons, and all these things started happening in the car. And uh, so it was very sad, but nevertheless, I was in a. It was very strange because you come back from being lauded. You've got your own caravan, you've got your own stand in, doing all the stand in, you've got all the broccolis there. And we just had a wonderful time. We were invited to all the rich, because it's a place where all the millionaires from Roma and Milano and Torino come to spend their winter holidays. And you meet a lot of millionaires and you feel very important. Very important. Of course, you come back to England and the very next day I was down in Brixton signing on <laughs> at the Brixton Labour Exchange. So it brings you down to earth, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. As we're used to doing that, getting the highs and the lows. And you guess it brings you back to earth. Yeah, yeah. I'm, an I'm an unemployed actor now again. An, an actor's life in a microcosm there. So what, what, are, you, what are you up to at the moment? I don't, I don't work anymore. I'm a member of BAFTA and I vote and uh, I socialise a lot. I go to the theatre. Um, I used to do, um, about eight years ago, I used to do training for presentation skills for businessmen. You know, how do they go up on stage and do a presentation? And... Uh, for a while I did some role playing for the big big major companies like PricewaterhouseCooper KPMG Pete Marwick Pricewaterhouse yes um, all those big companies but I've stopped doing that so I don't now at all so uh, well uh, as you uh, spend your time doing now and thinking about when you were doing out uh, what, what are the highlights uh, work wise over the years um, I, su- I suppose I didn't realise at the time, but joining the actors' company and working with these incredible actors, you know, ding. And we got, I mean, when you get, when you get to New York and you do a, a check-off and a restoration play and a Lear, and then we did a thing called Knots by R.D. Lang, which was directed by Edward Petherbridge, and which was made into a film. And then you get invited to Sardis after the first night, and they watch the reviews, and all the reviews, you got rave reviews, you know, you get personal reviews from Clive Barnes who was the doyen of the, of the critiques in New York and you get invited by Barbara Walters to do a live coast to coast which I did with Ian and um, it was Ian and me and uh, oh there was another, another actor and we did some I mean we just did it I mean you didn't think twice about it you're in New York you've got all these reviews you're asked to go to Radio City do this do the town Barbara Walters oh oh, oh Barbara Walters yes I know her and you go in and you do the interview and you come off and you ask one of the floor managers when is it being transmitted and he says it was out live <laughs> and we all said thank god we didn't know because I think we'd have all dried <laughs> I think it was going out live to 90 million people on, on the breakfast show you know extraordinary it is extraordinary 
Sure. Well, look, thank you for sharing your, your, your stories. Um, uh, as you know, uh, there's no money in this for anybody. Um, but we, So we do ask uh, the listeners uh, who've enjoyed this podcast to donate to a charity that I will ask you to nominate, please, John. Well, there's so many good causes, it's very difficult. I would think a charity to do with the investigation of prostate cancer, I think. Uh, and the final thing is we are meeting here today uh, nominally because it is the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, which started on the 23rd of November 1963, the day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, and it's still going all this time later. And you're, you're, I mean, the look on your face suggests that you remember where you were. I remember. I was doing, I was doing rep in Sunderland, uh, doing Musgrave's Dance by John Arden, and we came off in the interval and walked into the green room, and people said, "He's just been assassinated." I, I remember. It was such a shock. It was such a shock. Yes, I remember precisely where it was. Yes. And the next day, you probably missed Doctor Who as a result. Uh, but uh, so, and so that's why people are listening um, in part. So, what is your message to, uh, which can be as serious or as frivolous as you like, to the Doctor Who fans out there on this fiftieth year? My gosh, a message to Doctor Who fans. Well, bless you all for being such loyal fans. I. I mean, you are, you're the only reason we're doing it, really. I mean, actors go on stage, and it's only for you, the audience. That's why we're there. Not for, Well, I think act, some actors show off, but uh, we do it for you. So it's really an honour to be able to think of all those loyal people who enjoy our work. Well, what else? We don't get paid that much, so <laughs> as you know. So uh, unless you're a big star, of course, then you get overpaid. That's the problem with our industry. A lot of overpaid stars. Well, um, it's, uh, the fact that we've used one week's work back, uh, uh, you know, 40 odd years ago as a springboard for a delightful conversation, I have to say, uh, John Moreno, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I hope that was okay for you. Yeah, it was. That was great. That was great. John was a gentleman and secretly paid for all our cups of tea. What a very nice man. Well, on the next Who's Round, um, I've no idea, because I've had to cancel lunch with a composer for funerary duties, uh, sleep tight, Pete. Uh, but there are a few music men who are definitely up for singing to the Who's Round tune, so please keep listening, and do point people in the direction of the Big Finish website, as they are kind enough to host me. That's www.bigfinish.com, and feedback for these uh, goes to podcast at bigfinish.com. Feedback is welcome. John's charity, Prostate Cancer, is www.prostatecanceruk, all one word, dot org. Oh, by the way, everybody, I'm doing a double performance of my two Doctor Who-themed one-man shows, Moths Ate My Doctor Who Scarf and My Stepson Stole My Sonic Screwdriver, at the Garrick Theatre in London at the West End on the 17th of November, this year, the week before the anniversary. As you haven't paid for these podcasts, maybe you could pay to come and see those. They're, they're funny. And Doctor Who is mentioned in them now and again. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Lost Stories. The Dark Planet. Welcome to... 
to our city. Welcome to the city of the light. Relighting a sun? Isn't that uh, rather ambitious? My ambition is not your worry. That is why it must be guarded from the shadows. They are base creatures. They will be no more when Numir sees its eternal dawn. Deep underground, beneath the traveler's feet, below the surface of the planet, something felt their presence. The rock cemented in his grasp. Vicky, come, come away! away. Where are you? I, I, I can't find you. They burn all who are unlike them. Then we've got to get in there. Can you help us? Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.